Welcome to the Vets First podcast, a research-based conversation centered around the VA healthcare system, its services, and patients. From Iowa City, Iowa, here's your hosts, Dr. Levi Sowers and Brandon Ray. Welcome back to the Vets First podcast. Um, this is Levi. I'm by myself today. We're doing something a little different uh, while we introduce the episodes today. I'm going to be introducing the two guests that are going to be on this episode, and Brandon will be joining me during that interview later. Uh, today, we have two very special people, I think. The first guest today is Josh Moreno. He's an Army veteran. Uh, he was deployed to Iraq. Uh, he suffers from PTSD uh, and contemplated suicide at one point. Uh, this was all stemming from a TBI that he received uh, during his time in Iraq. And, um, you know, as chance would have it, as he sat on some stairs of a, of a barracks, contemplating suicide and smoking what he thought would be his last cigarette. Um, he has this amazing story of a tiny kitten that came out of the bush and sort of forever changed his life. So I really hope you uh, enjoy that. And if you can Google Josh and Scout, you can find his video that went viral a few years ago. Um, and then we follow up Josh Moreno's episode uh, with another interview by Rob Otto or, or with Rob Otto rather. He is a former captain in the Air Force, uh, an Iowa City native, uh, and he's a suicide prevention coordinator and social worker at the Iowa City VA. Um, so he's, he's uh, one of those few people, along with Josh, really, who didn't talk about that, but Josh and Rob both uh, served in the military and now help veterans. And um, uh, it's, it's a pretty cool episode. I think they fit together well, and this is going to be episode one of a three-part, well, a two-part uh, episode with four different people who are going to talk about mental health in uh, veterans, PTSD, and suicide risk that come along with veterans. And so um, I, I hope you enjoy the, the, the people here that we have today. And then I think I'm going to introduce you a little bit to some of the risks that go along with, with the veterans and, and PTSD and um, you know, this sort of goes hand in hand with the addiction episodes that we had earlier, uh, or, or substance abuse uh, episodes we had earlier. You know, veterans um, have a high rate of post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. Uh, it was once referred to as shell shock uh, you know, during World War II, and then or battle fatigue. And um, it, it, PTSD comes from trauma. Uh, it can be due to witnessing warfare and other significant tragic or startling events, which is common during war. And, um, you know, most cases of PSD are involved with combat or veterans who saw combat, but um, it can also happen after sexual abuse cases. You know, 23% of female veterans have reported being sexually assaulted during their time in the military. Uh, it's something that the VA takes quite seriously and, and, and now has devoted clinics and will be uh, a topic for future episodes we have here. Um, but overall, there's a significant number of veterans that suffer from PTSD, uh, which can lead to, to, to higher suicide risk. It can lead to higher headache risks, uh, uh, substance abuse disorders, etc. So it's something that the VA takes very seriously. And, uh, you know, just to go over some of the symptoms of PTSD, uh, those include flashbacks, memory problems, low sense of self-worth, um, you can get hopelessness, uh, trouble sleeping. Uh, oftentimes, people with PTSD have relationship problems. 
you can have uh, startling aggression towards people, uh, trouble concentrating, and, and, and definitely uh, self-destructive behaviors such as self-harm or substance abuse. Uh, and, and, and if you have any of these or you think you have a problem with PTSD, you can contact your nearest VA. Uh, if you go on our Vantage Point blog for this episode, you can find, uh, we have links to, to several places to get help, um, or you can call the, the trauma line at the, uh, or crisis line at the VA. And, um, you know, these symptoms it, it often come as a reminder of a traumatic event, you know, uh, which, which, you know, to, to weave it back into what we talked about earlier uh, with addiction, veterans with PTSD have a harder time overcoming addiction than those without. We have um, withdrawal symptoms that are combined with PTSD uh, can significantly amplify negative feelings and emotions uh, and may lead to relapse. So these things really go hand in hand. And that's really kind of the point of these, these four episodes that we've had on, on addiction and and mental health issues and PTSD. And, um, you know, uh, it, it, just to put some numbers in perspective, in 2017, a team of researchers looking at data on more than 4.8 million veterans uh, found that veterans with substance use disorders had twice the risk of suicide compared to those without substance use disorders. And, you know, there's 22 uh, veterans committing suicide uh, every day in the United States. And that's something we really hope to stop. And, and um, you know, we hope that that those suffering from problems that may seem uh, incurable at any given time can, can seek help. And that's really the goal of the VA. And there's significant research that's going on looking at these, at these uh, outcomes. And uh, uh, that'll be the focus of the next episode. And uh, Brandon will be introducing those doctors uh, as we move forward. So anyway, we're gonna get into the episode now and uh, thanks for joining us. We would like to warn listeners that the following content of this podcast may be triggering for some. If you are experiencing troubling and or suicidal thoughts, please call the Veterans Crisis Line at 1-800-273-8255 or text to 838-225. If you have hearing loss, call 1-800-799-4889 to be connected via text telephone. Uh, welcome back to the Vets First podcast today. Uh, we're lucky to have a veteran named Josh Marino. Uh, he's from Pittsburgh, and he was in the Army from 2007 to 2008. And I'll let him tell you a little bit more about his background. But uh, thank you for coming on, Josh. I really appreciate it. Happy to help out. And uh, along along with us today, as usual, is Brandon. And uh, Josh, can you tell me a little bit how you, like, you grew up in Pitt, you say, but, like, what was your childhood like? What do you... Uh, was it what did you uh, always want to join the army well my family had a, uh, a pretty good military background to it my, my uncle was in the army my grandfathers were in the army uh, uh, another uncle of mine joined the navy uh, so I, I, my, my family has a pretty strong military background but I was never really uh, set on the idea of joining the military when I was a kid uh, however when I was about 11 years old I joined up with the Boy Scouts and I actually excelled with the uh, with the Scouts in there and I earned my eagle before I turned 18 oh, wow. and really uh, I'm pretty sure that the, uh, the the experiences that I have with had with the Boy Scouts they really kind of put a, uh, a passion for service in me uh, just basically I wanted to give back to, to my citizenship to the world and the community for sure 
So when you when you uh, did you join right out of high school? I did not. No, after high school, I uh, I didn't know what I was going to do with myself, but I wanted to test myself out in the job market, maybe take a couple of college classes, and I actually didn't join the army up until I was uh, until I was 21 years old. Oh wow! So so did you where did you actually go to did you go to college for a while then, or were you just kind of like I trying well, to find I had had to pay my way through uh, community college, and uh, at the time I was working several part-time jobs just to be able to make ends meet, and uh, I was only able to get one uh, one semester under my belt at a community college before it just became way too expensive for me. So I looked at other options that I had, and the Army wasn't the, the first choice that I had, but at the same time, like I said, I, I had a passion for service in me, and I decided to follow the rest of my family members and, and join the Army. Yeah, so what, what made you finally make that decision? You know, it was a combination of several different things. It was the idea that um, in, in my childhood, in my time with the Scouts, I, I developed a, a strong sense of discipline. But as after I graduated high school, after I earned my Eagle Scout badge and, and started to move on into the, into the community, I, I noticed that a lot of that discipline was falling away, and I was just concentrating more and more on, like I said, making ends meet with, uh, with different jobs and trying to just be a a member of my community and after a while it came to my attention that you know I really wasn't fulfilling my my, my promise my potential so what I ended up doing was start talking around to a couple of my uh, family members to see what their opinions were of the service and I started talking with some recruiters and eventually I made the decision that you know maybe I can try my luck out here at either being a medic or maybe going into IT or communications something that I could easily excel at Awesome, Josh. Uh, so you'd mentioned uh, uh, previously that uh, Army might not have been your first choice, but why did you end up settling on the Army? Well, you know, it's kind of funny. There was, uh, <laughs> I told my friends this. There was, uh, my, uh, my parents were saying, yeah, you should go to the Army. My, uh, my, <laughs> my friends were saying, oh, no, you should go to the Air Force. And, you know, a couple other people were saying, yeah, you should do the Navy. <laughs> Nobody was saying, hey, man, you should go to the Marines. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, well, you know, nothing against Marines or anything like that. You but called them out on that. Family experience with the Marines. I ended up going into the Army because, uh, you know, a lot of my family members had served in the Army, and I knew that that was, you know, the the, the Army is the United States' premier fighting force. It's the, it's the first line of defense. So that's what I wanted to do. I figured I could serve my country best in the Army, from the Army. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So Brandon has another question. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. Um, so while you're in the army, uh, what did you do? Did you you previously mentioned uh, communications? Is that something that you did while you served? That's right. Yeah, when I joined up, I was uh, I joined up as a uh, 31 Sierra. We were uh, years later, we were actually reflagged as uh, 25 Sierras. That's uh, satellite communication systems operator, maintainer. Uh, in some cases, controllers. But basically, we uh, I, I, I was on as a SATCOM operator. I did tactical and strategic. And uh, after a while, you start cross-training on other systems. So I learned how to work high-capacity line of sight, uh, joint network node. Uh, obviously, I learned how to work the uh, KU band satellite transmission terminals. And basically, anything that dealt with communications, you know, when you're deployed or when you're working in a brigade combat team, you really got to learn everybody else's job at the same time. Yeah, so Josh, you, you ended up uh, joining the Army and you, you ended up being deployed. What was it like to find out that you were going to be deployed? You know, it, it's, uh, it's a strange state of affairs. Whenever, whenever I joined up with the, uh, with the Army, um, 
I, I had no idea that there would be any sort of conflict. I actually joined up uh, prior to the towers coming down on 9-11. I, I joined oh, wow. up in May of 2001. Um, and we, as we were uh, watching the towers come down on the, uh, the big screen in the day room when I was in AIT, we all knew that everything had you know, just changed. The entire world had changed. But I um, spent three years in Korea after that, and following my PCS from Korea, they sent me to Kansas, Fort Riley. And in Fort Riley, we were basically setting up a brand-new brigade combat team. When I arrived on post, there was a total of about 12 people in the entire brigade. And we set up the entire brigade from the ground up. We did all the, the wiring, we made all the, the company operation facilities, everything that needed to be done to make our brigade successful. We laid the groundwork for it. And about three years later, we were at uh, operating capacity and very efficient. And that's when the word came down that 4th Infantry Brigade Combat Team was going to be one of the uh, the units going in there leading the surge. So when we were, the, when the we third, were looking the, at the deploying, third. we all knew that it was something that we had to do. And there were quite a few of us that were in the brigade that were really anxious and, and wanting to deploy. We, we wanted to go and do our jobs. We wanted to prove that we could... You know, we could be effective at our jobs and effective communicators. We definitely got our chance. And when you say surge, you you mean the surge in Iraq or in Afghanistan? It was the surge in Iraq. Okay. It was around yeah. 2007, 2008 that we really started to push in there. And were you nervous at all to be deployed? Oh, of course I was. Absolutely. Nobody knows what to expect on deployment. Now, I had been forward deployed to Korea, as I said, for three years, but that's yeah. not really the same thing. Korea, you know that you know the balloon can go up at any point in time. You have to be ready to fight tonight. But whenever you're getting ready to deploy, whenever you know that you're going into a war zone, it's a completely different state of affairs. Yeah, I can. And all imagine. you can do is train. And it doesn't matter how much training you do, you can never be ready for it. Okay, so you end up in Iraq uh, in around 2007, and um, you were injured in combat, correct? That's correct. Yeah, I was. Uh, well, from. From the perspective of somebody who works in combo or IT or Intel, uh -huh. we really didn't have cause to go off offside the FOB, go outside the wire that often. Uh, I only did like a couple of times, but I was actually wounded on the FOB oh, in an uh, indirect fire attack. Wow. Now, so when this, hap when this happened, I was actually on my way from uh, EMCS and doing checks and services on one of our pieces of equipment to get myself a little bit of chow. And, uh, you know, typically they're going to have a, a siren going off that lets you know when there's incoming fire. But at this point in time, the siren didn't go off until after three of these uh, mortars had impacted right on the other side of a concrete brick wall from me. Okay, so you weren't, were you uh, physically injured from the mortar blast? You said, I, in your video, you mentioned that it's like 10 feet away from you. Um, yeah. It was on the other side of a, a wall? Yeah, that's correct. I was... Uh, I was walking along on one side of a road on the fob. There was a five-foot-high concrete brick wall that was right to the, to the right of me. It separated the road from the uh, one of our cavalry unit's uh, motor pools that they had right there. And the uh, the impacts were right on the other side of the wall. Uh, the first one hit less than 10 feet away from me. The second one hit, again, less than 10 feet away. And the third one hit, I don't know exactly where, but all I know is that it totaled one of the vehicles that was in that motor pool. Uh, I was saved from the majority of the shrapnel from... Uh, those blasts by the concrete brick wall itself, but the the shockwave from the explosions passed right through it, and in doing so, it passed right through me. So it moved my brain around in ways that a brain is not supposed to be moved mm -hmm. inside somebody's skull. You know, and that's something that I don't think people, uh, at least the general population, doesn't think about uh, causing an injury is the shockwave, because like you may not have been physically injured by the shrapnel, 
but the shock wave can actually do quite a bit of damage to a person's brain. And, yes, it can. And that's, that's something that it's sort of this unseen injury that exists in our veteran population. And, you know, it's something we study here at Iowa. And it's, um, it's, it's, it's we I want to say it's weird because you weren't injured physically outwardly, right? That someone couldn't see your injuries. And so I think that's a difficult thing for people who experience blast injuries um, have to go through. Would you agree or disagree? Or? Oh, I totally agree. Absolutely. The, uh, the idea of having an invisible injury is something that where, where I am right now in my life working with uh, individuals with disabilities, unseen injuries, these invisible disabilities, it, it's something that's very prevalent in what I do now. Yeah. But it's a totally different mindset in the military. If, if you don't look like there's something wrong with you, then nine times out of ten, people are going to think that there's nothing wrong. So it's it's kind of difficult to to get that kind of treatment to actually prove that there's that there's something wrong with you. And with me at the time, I had no idea that there was anything wrong. All I knew is that I was extraordinarily confused and angry and and in shock. And you know, it, it took a couple of, of days until. I uh, was talking to one of our uh, medics that was on, on site, and they, they informed me that, yeah, I was probably going to be suffering from post-concussion syndrome and probably have headaches for a long time. I was, I was about to ask uh, how long it had taken uh, before you really started to notice those differences, but you said it took a, a, couple, a couple days there. So, well, you know, I noticed the difference. I noticed the differences almost immediately. Mm -hmm. with, uh, with the headaches, it's like you get a headache, and typically a headache is going to go away in a couple of hours. Maybe you take a nap, and it'll go away when, by the time you wake up. But these headaches, man, they started up, and they never went away. I've, I've had a headache that's been going on ever since June 5th, 2007. Jeez, just constant. I'm sorry? Oh, sorry. Uh, the headache has just been constant? Pretty much, yeah. Ooh. I... Uh, I'm on a regimen of medication through the VA, and uh, I have a great support network, and I've developed quite a few strategies to uh, to accommodate myself, to really really make sure that I can still function on a daily basis. So, but for the most part, yeah, that's that's a constant headache. When you when you first you know got injured, and then the days following, um, did you notice any mental changes with it? Did your mental state change? Did you end up getting um, uh, medically discharged from this? How, what, what, what kind of occurred after the injury? Eventually, yes. I did, end, I did get a medical discharge. I had to go through the medical board process uh, whenever we redeployed back to the United States. But in the direct uh, aftermath of the injury, um, it, 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 was, it was really strange. For me, I noticed almost immediately that little things were different. Um, when, when we were still working in our tents, we all had a, you know, People would have uh, their PlayStation 2s or their Xboxes or whatever, and we'd, we'd land together a couple of TVs and sit there and play Halo or something or another first-person shooter game or whatever just to fill some time when we had off time. And I used to be really good at these first-person shooter things, and the night of the uh, the night that I was injured, you know, I was back in my bunk, and I'm sitting there, and my buddies, they wanted to play some Halo, and they wanted to call me down, so I sat down there, and I, I wanted to play with them and forget the events of the day, but I realized after just sitting down with the controller that there was something wrong. I, I, I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't remember the controls. I couldn't I couldn't put myself into the game, and I, I didn't understand what it was at that point in time. And then following that, the, the days that I would be working at my transmission terminal or working on my communications equipment, I started to realize that 
I wasn't operating the same way that I used to. I wasn't able to memorize the, the numbers that I needed to place into an up converter or a down converter or a modem or something like that. I wasn't able to do my job or um, really work at the same capacity that I had been for the past, you know, six years that I was, that I was in the service. But, uh, and for me right there, that, that's something extraordinarily depressing when all of a sudden it's like there's a light switch thrown and you can't be the same person that you've always been. And how would you, how would you describe the emotions during this time? Did it uh, initially begin somewhat like fear uh, or panic that you can't remember these things, and it kind of spirals into that? And I guess is this uh, like the precursor to uh, what you would describe as a, a, a PTSD? Yeah, there was definitely a lot of fear. It's the like I said, it's the type of thing where there's a switch thrown and you don't know what it is and you don't know what you can do, and all of a sudden everything in your mind has changed. But with me, um, that fear, that anxiety, it stayed present, but it also started to give birth to a lot of anger. Uh -huh. uh, mostly anger at myself because I, I, I couldn't understand why I wasn't able to do my job, why I wasn't able to operate at the same capacity that I used to. Mm -hmm. But it also started to branch out into um, unrequited anger. It was just be becoming angry or hostile at something, that, something or someone that is not deserving of it. And it was a complete sea change in my personality. Interesting. And again, I didn't know why it was, why it was happening, and so, I did not like it. And that bred more anxiety and more fear on top of it. So you you um, have suffered from PTSD, uh, or maybe still yeah. continue to do. Um, and you know, you you had this really interesting sort of uh, viral video that came out about you about this little kitten um, that you uh, said saved your life. So you were you were in a pretty this PT. I'm assuming that the the problems that came along with the headaches and the the anxiety and the depression um, led you to a pretty dark place in your life. Um, could you describe that a little bit and how you decided to change? What what was the switch in the other direction where you decided to change and and uh, maybe it wasn't even a decision to change. I'm I'm not sure if I'm even using the right terminology uh, to to describe that, but you get what I'm saying, right? It wasn't really a conscious decision. No, it was, yeah. um, as, I, as I said previously, you know, it's it's the idea of having a visible disability and a visible injury. And with the military, um, the the structure of leadership is is like if you don't see something wrong, then there is nothing wrong. But it also, um, if you're deployed with a number of people and they know what happened on deployment and they know about your injury, then whenever you redeploy and people are you know PCSing, they're changing stations, going to different duty stations, and new people are coming in. There's a change of command. And suddenly I was working with a bunch of people who were not with us on deployment and didn't know about the injury that I had sustained and the experiences that we all had while we were deployed. But they saw that I was, uh, I, I kept on falling out and I wasn't quite up to the task on a lot of different things. And to them, uh, quite a few of them, it, it looked like I was a shammer. It looked like I was malingering. It didn't seem like there was anything wrong with me. Then why should I be falling out? Why should I be having all these issues? Yeah. And the, that structure that it, it just it formed a lot of uh, it formed a lot of opportunities for harassment, for lack of a better word, for, mm -hmm. for teasing, for people that you know they, they want to make sure that they have a, a strong fighting force and yeah. you know you're gonna look at your weakest links and at that point in time I was a weak link and to me you know I was going through a medical board process at the time I still didn't understand the idea of PTSD or my TBI or what I was what I was dealing with or what I was supposed to be dealing with. And with not having the same people that I deployed with there for my support group, it was a whole new crop of people that I had to 
convinced that there was something wrong. And it was a very difficult thing to do. And that basically just drove me into a very deep, dark depression where I did not see a way out of it. I did not, I didn't see a way to get better. Uh, I didn't see myself returning to my status as a, as a team leader, as a, as a leader of other soldiers. And at that point in time, I just did not see a path forward. And the depression, it took me to a, a very, very dark place. And I was quite ready to take my own life because I just didn't. To me, I had conv- convinced myself that my, my parents and my friends would, total, would be totally understanding of it. But it wasn't going to be as a message to my leadership. It wasn't going to be as a message to anybody. It was just the fact that I was done. I was tired of living like uh, tired of living with a disability that nobody else could see. Yeah. And I just didn't want it anymore. You know, I think I think you know suicide is a very big thing in in um, the veteran population. Twenty two a day, that's estimated. Absolutely. And um, you know that's why I wanted to talk to you about this a little bit because you're someone who who went through the thick of it, and then came out on the other side and um, so it's really good to hear your experience and, and sort of so how did you know how did it end up how did you end up you know making it out to the other side well you know like I said I was in a, a very dark period I had already I had already written a, um, a letter to anybody who would actually find me um, prepared my room had everything cleaned up all my CIS stuff my central issuing facility stuff was all packed up and ready to go back and uh, I was fully intending on going downstairs to leave the barracks and smoke my last cigarette and coming back upstairs and taking my own life. But uh, while I was sitting down on the on the back stairs of the, of the barracks and I was smoking a cigarette, there just happened to be a, a little cat that came out from underneath the bushes. And with me, I, I grew up around animals, and they've always been a pretty heavy influence on my life. So seeing this little tiny thing that, you know, needed help from me, it seemed like, it, it kind of it, it kind of made me realize that maybe there is another path, maybe there is another an escape hatch, so to speak, away from the PTSD, away from the depression. Maybe I could do something that could address my own anxiety while helping other people. I always wanted to serve, you know. And for me, seeing that I would be medically discharged from the military and knowing that I wouldn't be able to serve anymore, that was a major it was a major sticking point with me. It was something that was going to it, it was one of the major causes of my depression. But then I realized that, you know, maybe there were other opportunities where I could continue serving, where I could continue serving veterans and, and helping people out. And that was pretty much the turning point for me right there. That little cat, man. Yeah. So, so Josh, with this little, this little kitten, um, from watching your video, uh, you were helping out this kitten. It was really starting to turn around, but then you had said that uh, one day the kitten disappeared. And... With that loss there, uh, eventually you were uh, you were able to find the cat in that uh, adoptathon. But do you think you would have been able to persevere if it weren't for refinding Scout? Um, I guess what I'm what I'm leading up to is you talk about finding finding something in your life that you can uh, like you say serve slash um, a reason to live. Uh, losing Scout. Uh, if you hadn't refound Scout, uh, where do you think you would have gone from there? You know, it was it was a very uh, interesting it was a very interesting state of occurrences that happened at just the right time. You know, it started out with that fateful night that that little cat found me, and you know, every day after work, yeah, I would I would take him out a little bit of food, and him and his litter mates would be quite happy with the food, but 
over the course of the uh, the next few months, I had uh, struck up a conversation with uh, the woman that would become my wife, mm-hmm. and it was uh, it was an, I started to find a support network. I started to build my support network from that day that I met the cat onward. So by the time he he had disappeared, by the time the animal control people had come around and, and scooped up all these stray feral cats, by that time I had already built up a support network. I'd already oh, started talking with uh, healthcare providers about addressing the issues of my PTSD and my TBI. I had already uh, struck up a conversation with uh, my future wife and I had approached my uh, my parents and I, I, I told them exactly what was wrong and how I was feeling about this. And having that kind of support with your parents, it's always going to be there from your parents, but they need to know what's wrong to yeah. provide the best support. And that was something that I was able to do. What I, what I was able to get was from my parents and from my friends and well, for my future wife as well. So I think that, yeah, even the, even if I hadn't found Scott again, um, I think I would have been okay. Um, but honestly, it was serendipitous fun that Yeah, it's really cool. It's, it's a really neat story. So um, uh, one thing, I, I think an underlying current of what you've been talking about is understanding, the word understanding, um, your lack of understanding. And then was there a tr- transition into understanding your own um, illness and how did that help you with that? Did did you you said you sought out, you know, professional medical help? Was was that difficult to do for you? Did you um, were you scared to do it? Well, when I was still on active duty, as I was going through the med board process, um, what I was seeing was that uh, most of the medical professionals that I was dealing with, uh, they really didn't share the same experiences that I and my my fellow combat veterans had. Uh, what I like to call the boots on the ground experience. That first-person experience is that that ability to connect with somebody to um, that that that's something that is it's invaluable. It's something that you cannot put a price on. And with any kind of a disability or an illness or an injury, once you have it, you really have to learn the language. You have to understand what it is and what the what what it's going to draw from you and what you need to do to address it. So that was something that I did once I I had the diagnosis of PTSD and for the TBI and post-concussive syndrome, I really started to do a lot of research. I've always been a heavy reader, and I started to look up online all these different uh, medical journals and different articles that have been written on the, the research into PTSD and into, and into TBI. And I realized that I wasn't the only person that was feeling this disconnect with their, with their providers. And I saw that as a, it was an opportunity. This was an opportunity where you know, I might not be able to do the, the same kind of communications work and IT work that I've been doing in the past, but, you know, I could still fill the shoes of a healthcare professional, of a provider that, you know, can 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 talk to somebody from a first-person perspective. Sure. So that's pretty much where I took it. I, I had cool. that understanding, and I really wanted to make sure that other people had that understanding as well. Yeah, you know, and that's I think that's one of the critical points of why we're doing this particular podcast, Josh, is we want to hear from people like you and give researchers like me and Brandon and others uh, a, a chance to listen to your guys' point of view and hear from veterans and try to understand what it's like to be in your shoes. Um, and Because it's really easy to become disconnected when you're doing research uh, from the veteran itself, you know, themselves. Absolutely. Um, one other thing, uh, uh, kind of the last topic I really want to get into here. Uh, I have two more topics I want to get to. So have you, have you, um, you seek care from the VA? Yes, I do. And how, how has your VA care been? Have they been pretty good with mental health resources and, and, uh, 
Well, due to the fact that I'm uh, due to the fact that I'm service-connected disability and it's uh, it's combat injuries, uh, I've got pretty much 100% care through the VA. Yeah. So I really pursue all of my care with them, uh, and that includes my counseling care and uh, psychiatric care as well. I see a psychiatrist about four times a year. My primary care provider is uh, very familiar with my case, and she's also very very helpful. And I've actually started seeing uh, a counselor with the VA uh, on a regular basis, just about okay. once every yeah. two or three weeks. Uh, this is something that the VA has really uh, put a lot of effort and resources behind over the past several years. It's something that uh, they realize that there, there's a sparsity of counselors, of, of decent counseling help within the VA mm-hmm. system. And a lot of individuals could benefit from this help. So what we're seeing is more and more counselors are being hired by the VA. They're employing more and more of them. And they're really making those counselors more uh, accessible to the individuals that really need them. Yeah, That's something that I, can, I, I love about the VA is they're not afraid to look at the, the trends in treatment and apply the best trends, those, those best practices, to whatever case is needed. Interesting. Okay. And the last, the last thing I want to ask you about is, you actually help veterans now. You, you, you touched on it just a little bit, but you actually um, help counsel veterans now, don't you? Yes, I do. Is, I, uh, is that I'm pretty currently working with the uh, Human Engineering Research Labs, uh, directed by Dr. Rory Cooper, who himself is a paralyzed veteran. Uh, we are actually a, uh, one of the VA's centers of excellence. We specialize in robotics, mobility, and basically disability access, uh, accessibility. And uh, I love my job because what I get to do is every time we have a veteran who's coming through, whether they're going to school or if they need a little bit of help with prosthetics or orthotics, or if they just want to come in here and understand exactly what we do as an entity in the VA, I get to work with these vets every day. And it's, it's, it's one of the most rewarding things I've ever experienced in my whole life. Awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Josh, I really appreciate you talking to us today and spending the time. I know you're a busy man and you've got this marathon coming up. Can you tell us a little bit about that marathon quick before you? Oh, uh, yeah, it's the uh, it's Pittsburgh Marathon. It's going to be on uh, Sunday, May 5th, Cinco de Mayo. And uh, it's going to be great, <laughs> man. We're, I get out there and we provide, uh, since we're, we're a, a research lab that deals with mobility issues, wheelchairs, power chairs, stuff like that, we provide uh, mechanical and medical support to the, uh, the hand cyclist competitors no, very that cool. compete in the marathon. So, you know, if anybody's out there on a hand cycle or a push room, and I'm out there on my bike with a, a toolkit on my back and a, a badge on my chest and a radio strapped to my hip. If anybody <laughs> has any mechanical instances, I'm right there. I, I get up to them as fast as possible and provide whatever mechanical support they need. Do, do a lot of veterans uh, participate? Uh, you know, they do. We yeah. end up getting probably a crop of about like five to ten vets that participate just about every year, uh, oh, whether they're great. doing hand cycle or push room comp- competition. They might even want to get in there and actually just do the, the straight-up marathon and, yeah. and run the full mileage. But for the most part, we love to see anybody compete, whether they're a veteran, whether they're a dependent, whether they're just a supporter. You know, we love seeing people out there. Absolutely. Well, Josh, thank you again, man. I really appreciate your time. Welcome back to the Vets First podcast. Uh, I'm here with Brandon as always. Hello everyone. And uh, today we're lucky to have Robert Otto, who's a prior Air Force captain in the Air Force obviously, and then 
He is now the suicide prevention coordinator and a social worker at the Iowa City VA healthcare system. Uh, thanks for joining us, Rob. Oh, thanks for having me. And so the first question I always ask everybody, and I think people, if they listen to our podcast, will get to know this by now, is um, where'd you come from? Well, uh, originally born and raised in um, Iowa City. Uh, I'm just uh, so uh, Iowa City native, and um, you know, I went to K through 12 in uh, Solon, uh, and then um, uh, after that, um, I think I've really been in the you know interested in the military in some way, shape, or form ever since I knew what the military was. Uh, so I was uh, uh, going part time to uh, Kirkwood after I graduated high school and um, a local community college and. You know, I was really interested, you know, still interested in the, uh, in the military. At the time, I really wasn't very interested in school. Um, but, uh, you know, I just grew up thinking, well, college is just something that you do, uh, you know. And so yeah. um, I was actually really close to, um, you know, enlisting in the Marines. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, and uh, so I actually bumped into a friend of mine that I had uh, uh, went to high school with. And he was actually in the Air Force ROTC program. Uh, but I, I bumped into him at Kirkwood because he was getting a couple of his gen ed courses out of the way. And uh, so he was in his uh, uh, Air Force uniform. And uh, so, you know, just started talking with him. And uh, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to sign up for the Marines, uh, sign up with the Marines tomorrow. And he's like, oh, really? Wow. Well, we have our early morning leadership laboratory. So if you wanted to come by, check it out. <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, so I ended up uh, doing that. Really liked, uh, really liked the team and uh, really liked the uh, uh, the uh, the Air Force ROTC folks, and uh, you know, so they talked about you know you know what it was to you know for the officer training program, um, it, you know, and just a lot of the you know just what the job entails really just kind of spoke to me, and so you know it was kind of a <laughs> kind of an uncomfortable call to the uh, the gunnery sergeant that uh, at the uh, Marine recruiting station, um, but uh, he said, well, I think I'm going to put a blue suit on instead. <laughs> Um, you know, and so the, you know, so the rest was history. So, um, yeah. Where'd you do your training at? Uh, I'm sorry? Where'd you do your training at? Oh, your so, um, so I went to, uh, I went to my, uh, basic training in, um, uh, Tyndall Air Force Base in, uh, Florida. Cool. And, uh, cool. so that was, uh, still while I was going through my undergrad, um, at the, uh, University of Iowa. Um, and uh, so that was so uh, so basically did the uh, I was an underclassman there for a couple of years and then uh, then you go to basic training and you're an upperclassman for your uh, uh, for your junior and uh, senior years. Awesome, yeah. And so how long did you serve in the military for? So I served uh, for active duty for six years and I'm actually still technically in the uh, inactive ready reserve. So they uh, so I don't drill or anything like that, but they got my number if they need me. <laughs> nice. Oh. So Rob, what did you do while you were uh, uh, active duty? So active duty, I was a uh, personnel officer. So uh, so a lot of people ask me, so what did you fly? And I say, well, I flew a desk. You know, so uh, so <laughs> really a lot of it. So you know, um, you know, so I, you know, I, um, you know, I wasn't like you know on the front lines, toe to toe with the enemy. But um, but uh, a lot of what I did in the military, you know, was a lot of um, especially as an officer. A lot of it was, you know, a lot of administrative uh, work, but also a lot of it was kind of like what I'm doing now, you know, really leading teams, doing project management, program management, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, so it uh, really, you know, it, it was a very different track to what I initially, you know, was looking to uh, get out of the Air Force, which was to be a pilot. But, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, that's where my path led me and uh, ended up really, you know, being, um, 
you know, just really being a, a good fit because I learned an awful lot. I really liked uh, one of the, you know, some of the things I really liked about that career field was I wasn't just socialized around other officers. I was leading teams. I was working a lot with the enlisted, uh, with the enlisted corps, um, you know, and, and just pretty much all levels of leadership all the way from, you know, the big wig generals uh, all down to people that are basically just fresh out of basic training. So um, it really afforded me a, a lot of variety, which, uh, which was great. Fantastic. Um, so wh what years did you serve? So I served from, let's see, so wow, has it been that long already? <laughs> uh, so I uh, went on active duty in December of 01 and uh, was actually still technically in the reserves until then, until I reported for active duty. So January of 02 to uh, January of 08. Uh, did you get deployed? Uh, yes, I did. So um, just a really quick rundown of everything. So I, I, my first duty station was Vanderbilt Air Force Base in California, uh, which was uh, for about a year, uh, three years down in uh, Luke Air Force Base in Arizona, uh, and then um, two years overseas, uh, Lodges Field, Azores, uh, which is a, a Portuguese territory, a small uh, volcanic island archipelago in the middle of the Atlantic, and then uh, forward deployed to, uh, to uh, Bosnia working for the NATO forces. Oh, very cool. That's pretty neat. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Okay. Then, then back uh, home. <laughs> yeah, you're the first person we've talked to that's been deployed for NATO. Mm -hmm. Pretty interesting. Well, that was a that was a really good deployment. Um, you know, working with about I think when I was there, there were about 32 different nations that were working there, and uh, a little bit confusing at first. You know, just getting used to the different accents and stuff like that. But you know, English was the common language, and uh, you know, just working with so many people from different countries. Once you get settled in, honestly, I had a, a great time. It was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. You know, just just kind of interesting the you know how you know the you know the, the differences weren't very prevalent after a while. It's just like, oh yeah, this person happens to be from you know Italy or this person is from Germany or something like that. You know, you just don't really see that after a while. It's just like, well, we're all military, we're all you know working together toward a, a common mission. So that I just thought That's that was really cool. neat. Yeah, it's awesome. So what did you get your undergraduate degree in at Iowa? Uh, so undergrad was in uh, sociology. And, um, you know, it was kind of, you know, it was kind of one of those things where I'm like, well, I need a bachelor's, you know, degree, but I'm not exactly sure what direction I want to go in except for the military. I know that I want to, I want to serve in the military and that's about it. So, you know, I'm like, well, I took a whole bunch of different gen ed courses. And so just talking with the, uh, uh, with the uh, counselor, once I uh, got, uh, got accepted the RTC program, I'm like, well, of the credits I have, what am I closest to? And they're like, well, let's see. Uh, well, sociology, you're pretty close on that. I'm like, you know, I'm like, well, I don't know anything about sociology, but sounds good. Sign me up. <laughs> uh, you know, so is that, is, that what, is that what led you down the road to do uh, social work? One of them. Uh, you know, so it was, it was kind of, you know, before I even knew that I was interested in it. Um, you know, and so I think just with the social sciences, uh, you know, I really learned a lot about people. Uh, and then I started realizing that, you know, even though it, you know, you know, it wasn't a focused approach at all. It was more like, okay, I need, a, I need a degree in order to get my commission through ROTC, so what am I closest to? And so it turned out that, you know, I started, you know, when I actually started listening in class, uh, you know, it, it was kind of one of those things that I'm like, oh, this, okay, so this is pretty interesting stuff. And then I started getting interested in like the, the research and, you know, spending some extra time talking with the professors and just, you know, just talking with them about that. And that was, you know, not, I don't, you know, I really wasn't a very good student back then, you know, because like I really just didn't have the same kind of discipline. Um, I wasn't really motivated in the topic except for, 
you know, just getting my, you know, getting my degree so I could start serving in the military. Um, but when I got on active duty, I realized a lot of the things that I learned in sociology really translate into what I was doing, you know, working with people, understanding people, where are they coming from? And, you know, and just, uh, you know, understanding human behavior. And so, you know, that really, you know, when I started realizing, oh, wow, you know, so this maybe has a utilitarian, you know, aspect rather than, uh, rather than, uh, you know, just getting a degree so I can, you know, get my commission. Um, I started really appreciating that. And then, um, you know, and then on active duty, you know, I never considered myself an academic person at all. I mean, I really was not motivated in school. I wasn't a great student in high school, wasn't a great student in my undergrad, but, you know, when I, when I got my, um, uh, you know, I actually signed up for a, a, a master's program. It was a business management uh, on active duty. It was something that I was really interested in by that. And so it was kind of like, you know, sociology kind of planted the seed. Um, and then uh, when I realized, oh, you can actually go to school for something you're interested in. Oh, wow, that's cool. Uh, you know, and so, so for, the, uh, for the first master's uh, in business management, I ended up really liking it and doing really well. You know, just oh wow! I mean, I actually can do this stuff. I can actually do well in school. Uh, you know, and so that was uh, you know that was the first part. And so uh, you know, I think that's really what I got out of active duty is that you know because basically I signed up for the master's program on active duty because they're like, well, if you want to see past captain realistically down the road, if you want to make a career out of the military, got to get a master's. Um, you know, it, it's not always like that, but just when I was in, that's that's basically just the reality of of um, you know being an officer and so signed up for it but this time you know thankfully I was thinking about it a little bit first and I'm like well I never really cared for school very much I just didn't I didn't like it I wasn't motivated in it um, I just wanted to start doing a job that seems to be the common thread that I talk to when we yeah. talk to veterans they're always like I didn't really want to do school so yeah. <laughs> yeah and then but yeah lo and behold you know you you start uh doing something that uh you know you start studying things that you like and lo and behold not only do you do a lot better but you actually enjoy it as you're going through it um, sociology was kind of like i didn't really appreciate it until after the fact um but uh but no that was that's where i you know i actually started liking school and uh you know just started you know just uh really just saying well okay well maybe academics has some pretty cool stuff about well, I think it gives credence to getting some life experience uh, and per perhaps like not jumping headlong into school right away is the path for everyone. But then, so, you're, so where did you get your uh, social work degree? Like after, after you get all the planning, you, uh, you uh, got your master's here. How did you jump into social work? So social work actually was an even more interesting course uh, path getting there. It was um, so I, I, I uh, went back to the uh, University of Iowa uh, for, uh, for the College of Social Work. Uh, school of social work and uh, so it was a really strange path getting there because after getting out of the military um, you know and unlike a lot of other uh, combat veterans um, you know or, or just well veterans in general when I got out of the military I wasn't suffering from PTSD I wasn't living with a lot of the other you know physical and mental health issues that a lot of other fellow veterans uh, you know live with when they take the uniform off and the biggest thing that really got me into social work was a lot of the struggles that I had after the military. Um, you know, one of the, one of the things is that, um, uh, you know, just when I decided to take the voluntary separation program, because there was a, a large reduction in force and, and, uh, you know, being in the personnel career field as an officer, uh, that was one of the career fields that was the most highly cut. Um, you know, and so it's either stay in and 
probably get cut um, or take the voluntary separation bonus, get a year salary and, and go voluntarily. And so I, I decided to do the latter. Um, but after taking the uniform off, I also, you know, lost my rudder, so to speak. You know, it was just, I really just didn't have much of a direction. Um, you know, I, I pretty much had thought that I was just going to, you know, you know, spend the rest of my professional career in the military. You know, I, I really didn't want to do anything else. And so after coming home, I was thinking, okay, now what? What, what do I want to do? I, I really don't know what I want to do. I don't know anybody. Um, and I separated from when I was overseas. And so, you know, I was not used to, I wasn't used to, uh, you know, the civilian culture, let alone even seeing road signs written in English. And so, you know, coming home, um, uh, it's, you know, just, you know, not knowing my place, um, you know, not knowing where I fit in, not even knowing what I wanted to do, um, you know, so, I, so my answer was, you know, so my answer for the time being was like, well, maybe it'll come to me. And so I guess in the meantime, I can just kind of drive around. I'll just go to the gym. I'll uh, exercise and I'll crash at my dad's house and uh, sit up until about four in the morning, drinking beer, watching TV. Um, <laughs> you know, and so it's kind of, and I can say that jokingly now, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. but you know, it's just kind of like, you know, when I was doing that, it's, uh, I was really thinking, wow, am I just, am I just a piece of crap? You know, it's just like, is there something wrong with me? And it's like, well, okay, maybe I'll, maybe I'll like, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll look for a job and, uh, you know, and I'll, I'll just try to figure it out from there. So, you know, I tried looking at things like, you know, things that would be kind of comparable to what I was doing. So I was kind of like, well, project program management. And so it's like, well, I'm Air Force, so maybe I'll check out Rockwell Collins, putting in just application after application after application and, you know, no responses whatsoever. And, you know, and, it, and it's like, and I'm thinking, okay, wow, this, this is really messed up. You know, this is, I mean, I don't know what the heck's going on. And so I'm thinking, well, you know, if, if things like that aren't going to work out, then maybe I'll try something different. You know? and so um, you know, and one of the things that I, you know, I did is actually, well, at the time I was still riding motorcycles. And so I started, you know, I, I had a couple of friends and one of them who worked at the uh, local Harley Davidson dealership. They're like, well, you know, we can hire you part-time. I mean, you can be around bikes, you know, and it's like, you, you know, and, and, uh, you know, you know, so I was like one of the uh, front office sales folks and, uh, you know, that was fun being around bikes, but it was still just in a, you know, I was still just in a daze. I mean, I didn't even really know how to talk to, uh, you know, civilians in the course of like, you know, a couple of veterans walk through. It's just like, Hey, what's going on? You know, but, yeah. but so otherwise, you know, I, yeah, I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Did you try to get involved with any veterans organizations at all? I didn't even, and at that time, and that's a good question. Cause at that time, I didn't even know if I really qualified as a veteran, um, I see. Yeah. you know, and so that was like, well, I, I served in the military, but I, I didn't know if veteran meant, you know, well, do your 20 and retire or, um, or, or what. Um, so, you know, so that's another thing. And I know that I'm not the only one in that boat too. Um, you know, don't even, I don't even know if I can call myself a veteran. Um, so I, I didn't even know if, you know, I was eligible um, and then coming home and not knowing anybody, um, you know, that was pretty tough, you know, building any kind of a social network. And uh, so I, I didn't talk to any veterans organizations until much, much later. Um, and, uh, you know, because it, and that was one of the many jobs. And so after a while, I'm just like, well, this is part time, you know, so it's just like, I'm, I'm just really having trouble making ends meet because with bills and everything like that, I was losing more than I was bringing in. So I, you know, and so uh, a pretty scary wake up call was when I went to buy groceries and my uh, debit card was declined. And I, 
know, I didn't even realize that, so I had to leave my groceries there and just go home. Um, and uh, so, you know, that was that was another wake up call. And so I got another job, you know, just selling hardware, driving a forklift, and all that other kind of stuff. And then, uh, and I was thinking, well, what am I missing? You know, because this is every day is an uphill battle. I just do not like working in the corporate environment. I mean, I don't understand civilians. They don't understand me. Um, you know, and every time I heard "thank you for your service," I'm like, "Well, I appreciate that," but on the inside, I'm like, "Well, it kind of makes me uncomfortable hearing that." Um, you know, and it's and so so I, I figured, well, what am I missing out of that? You know, I, I kind of miss being in uniform, having a mission, having you know, being part of a, a close knit team, and so that's kind of where I started getting interested in law enforcement. Um, you know, I'd, I'd also been interested in you know things like um, you know criminal justice. Um, you know, a big part of what we talked about in my business management courses, uh, you know, was uh, security management, especially. So I'm just like, well, maybe I'll try out for law enforcement. And so I started testing with a lot of the different um, uh, local departments uh, in town, uh, or just in the local communities, um, surrounding areas. And it just turned out that uh, um, when I was still uh, working as a, you know, driving a forklift, um, I got a call, it was from uh, one of the local departments and uh, they said, well, so are you still interested in uh, being a police officer? And I'm like, yeah, I am. Um, so I uh, got hired on, I uh, went through the academy, did really well. Um, and uh, and so I started finding out right away that it was, it, unfortunately it was just a shoe that didn't fit. Um, you know, it started, it, you know, it started really affecting me personally. Um, you know, just seeing a lot of the, of the things that, and you know, after a short while, um, I started realizing, well, you know, I don't know, maybe I can just ride this out for a little bit longer. And then, you know, I'm interested in investigations. And so, you know, maybe that's, that's something that, you know, maybe I can get into, I can ride this out for now. But um, another thing that, you know, was really a big motivator for me um, choosing the social work career field was um, if we got a call, uh, we basically, it was just, if it was like a dead body call, say like, so, you know, somebody discovers somebody that had died in the home and then, you know, the police would usually would have to come and then they would have to do an investigation and all that kind of stuff. But the most rewarding part for me was working with the family members or friends that had found them. Mm -hmm. um, being there, being supportive for them, understanding that this could be one of the worst days of their life and they're just feeling awful. Um, and then just being able to be there for them, just say, look, I, I can't even imagine what you're feeling right now, but you know, there has to be an investigation. Would you mind if we, you know, went over into the other room and I can ask you a few questions if you're feeling up to it and, you know, and then we can, you know, we can go to go from there and if you need help and I can help you get connected with those kinds of things, so on and so forth. And then just having them say, you know, yeah, I really appreciate your help. Um, that was, that was some of the most rewarding parts for me as well. And so, you know, the more I was on patrol, I kept daydreaming more and more. It's like, wow, maybe I can do that full time. And then, um, and also realizing that it just wasn't, you know, just, it was a shoe that just didn't quite fit. And then also realizing that, um, you know, some of the calls that I'd been on really did mess with me. Um, you know, I'm thinking, well, maybe this is not the right fit. And then so I started, you know, so I made the really difficult decision to take the badge off. Um, and then I, I don't think I really realized, um, I don't think I really realized the mental health struggles that I was going to have or was going through while I was still um, uh, still on duty as a uh, still still with the police department and so yeah. you know I started realizing 
you know, after I'd taken the badge off, honestly, I did not leave the house for a week. Um, you know, I, I felt like a complete failure. I thought that I was letting the department down, letting myself down, letting my wife down. Um, and, uh, you know, did I was it, thinking, what is wrong with me? Did it feel like it was a repeat of leaving the military? A little bit, um, you know, because it's something that you work very hard to get into. Um, you know, there's a lot of testing. There's a lot of, you know, hurry up and wait. There is, you know, I mean, there's, there's psychological testing. There's physical testing. Um, you know, the academy is tough. Um, and, you know, it's, and, you know, basically as an academy class, kind of like going to basic training, you go through a lot of challenges together. I mean, you suffer together uh, and then you're out on the street and you're facing dangers together, um, mm -hmm. you know, some very dangerous, stressful situations together. And then, you know, when I realized, wow, this is just not the path for me, um, you know, it was, it was one of the most difficult decisions I ever had to make. Uh, yeah. Because there were a lot of things I, that I liked about the job and being able to be there, you know, at the drop of a hat for somebody who was in trouble. Um, and, uh, and, you know, just, just coming to that realization was, was really, really tough. Um, but I think some of the mental health struggles that I had after I took the badge off um, was I, I think that in hindsight, I really think that I was experiencing post-traumatic stress, but not to the, not to the extent that it, was actually a disorder. I didn't get to the point where it was really affecting my um, uh, my social and occupational functioning to the extent that I couldn't do a job or couldn't sure, you know, yeah. continue to be social. But you know, things like um, I started experiencing a lot of things like hypervigilance. Um, you know, it was just you know I you know if we ever went out, which was a lot more rare. Um, I, you know, I could never sit with my back to a door or to a window. Uh, I'd go into certain places in, in town where I would usually, where I would, uh, where I would patrol occasionally or be on patrol occasionally. And, uh, you know, I, you know, my palms would start sweating. I feel my heart just racing, my breath rate going up. And I just, the only thing that I could think of is I, I got to get out of here uh, because I, I felt exposed. Um, and, you know, and that's, and, you know, of course, you know, when, when you're on duty as a police officer, you know, you've got the uniform, you've got your, uh, you know, you've got your flak vest on, you've got, you know, your sidearm, you've got, you know, just all of the, all the tools to be able to defend yourself. Um, but, you know, just, just that hypervigilance mixed with that feeling, feeling completely exposed. I mean, basically naked outside um, and then just not knowing what danger would, might be lurking around the corner. It was, wow, is somebody going to recognize me that I came in contact with when I was on duty? Uh, they, they're going to think, wow, this guy's a cop, so I'm going to, I'm going to dogpile him and just beat the crap out of him. Um, yeah. And thinking with that, you know, just, and, you know, and it took a long time to be able to shake somebody's hand again, that I was not close friends and family members with. Um, did you seek, that was another, you seek help for it? I never did. Um, you know, in hindsight, uh, I certainly, I certainly probably could have. Um, but at that time I was thinking, well, maybe it's, maybe I'm just really tightly wound. And, uh, you know, I think for myself, you know, thankfully with time, um, most of it uh, really did resolve. Um, you know, it's like I can I can shake people's hands now. Uh, I'm more comfortable in public. I can actually sit with my back to a door now. Um, but it really was a it was a challenge getting there. Um, I think some of the things that really messed with me was that when I was on duty is uh, especially during uh, uh, football games and being in gigantic crowds. It's mm. just it might be you and another officer, and then you know everybody else and you know, especially when people are, uh, a large crowd of people are intoxicated, they're amped up, um, 
and especially if somebody gets into a fight and officers have to get involved and they have to arrest people, uh, you get a lot of people screaming at you, leave them alone, you know, and it's just like, yeah. you don't know if there's just going to be this mob of hundreds of people coming down on you and crushing you to death, basically. And, yeah. You know, things like that. It's like, and I'm, I still am not really comfortable around large crowds, um, you know, and so, I mean, there's, there's still some lingering stuff that uh, may or may not resolve, I don't know. Um, but I think with me, what really helped was forcing myself to go outside of my comfort zone, and plus my wife being there for me too, which was huge. Um, you know, because I, you know, after doing that, I was thinking, wow, I can't make anything work after the military. You know, it's like, I thought, you know, well, police, I thought that, that might be, uh, you know, the, you know, the job that I'd retire with, and, you know, just, and, you know, well, and I'd just be able to move on with life. And then I was just feeling like a complete and utter failure. I thought that I was broken. Um, you know, I just, I just felt like, I just felt like a complete piece of crap. Um, yeah, so bridging, bridging your experience into what a veteran might feel. Um, I have no clue about PTSD. Um, never experienced it. Uh, you know, not on that level. So what a, a veteran who experiences PTD is, or PTSD, is that common that they have this hypervigilance? What, what does it consist of? Because now, because now I'm, I'm, I'm sort of shifting gears here because like, sure. you, you, you were a veteran and you experienced these things and then, and now you help veterans uh, using, using your, your, your social work degree. And, you know, how does it, how do you relate that to helping veterans and what does PTSD mean for veterans? Absolutely. Well, and that's the thing is because like with PTSD, it, um, I think for a lot is a lot of veterans, it's really a stigma. Um, but, uh, you know, what I like to uh, counsel as many veterans as I, as I possibly can, whether they got PTSD or not, if they ask the question, I say it's just like, well, you know, a lot of times, you know, veterans will think of PTSD or anything mental health related as weakness, you know, because like all veterans, regardless of which uniform you wore, um, every one of them, uh, you know, we're, we're all treat, we're, we're all taught, suck it up. You know, if you, you know, if you're still able, physically able to, you know, continue forward, if you're sick, if you're hurt, but you can still move forward, um, just do it, just suck it up and do it. Um, you know, and yeah, and, you know, the heat of things, you know, that can, you know, make sure, you know, that can keep you going, but uh, it just really doesn't translate well into, you know, regular, you know, everyday life. Um, and so one of the things that I like to say is like, well, our brains are wired to protect ourselves. And so PTSD is actually the fallout from our brains doing exactly what they're meant to be doing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, especially with uh, having been a police officer and had my own experience with post-traumatic stress, even though it never got to, you know, the same level as a lot of the veterans that are out there living with it. But it started making sense that, you know, you know learning about mental health and learning how you know, the brain works and, you know, and just realizing that, you know, post-traumatic stress is a reaction to life-threatening situations or even, or perceived life-threatening situations. And so, you know, with that, I try to, you know, really counsel as many people as I possibly can just to get that stigma out. Um, you know, number one, it's not just unique to veterans, even though roughly, I, I think if I remember correctly, it's about 20% of veterans um, experience PTSD. Um, and, uh, you know, and so it's, uh, so it could be from combat, uh, military sexual trauma is another one. Um, if uh, they have a history of childhood trauma, uh, the, um, the likelihood of re-traumatization um, or increased traumatization is, uh, is uh, very increased. So that's one of the things that I really try to say is just like, it's a, it's a natural response. What our brains are wired to do 
if and when we're exposed to you know potentially life-threatening or dangerous situations when you talk with uh when you meet with veterans um do they know that you're a veteran as well does that help uh bridge the gap and like get the message across that this isn't weakness this is uh, uh an adaptive mechanism that you you're talking about and it's okay to feel this way and work through it yeah, so, so like I don't really come right out and say I'm a veteran unless they ask. Uh, I do get asked quite a bit, um, but uh, I think also a lot of my lanyard, uh, they, see the, <laughs> they see the Air Force lanyard too. Um, but, um, you know, and then I also have like a little hang tag on my, uh, on my identification badge that says veteran as well. Um, but, uh, you know, that's, if it does come up, um, you know, a lot of times it, um, it, it can help with breaking the ice. Um, but it's, it, you know, it only helps up front and, uh, you know, especially if I'm, uh, you know, if I'm uh, working with like interns or anything like that, or if I'm mentoring other uh, folks that are new to, um, you know, psychotherapy or the mental health field, I say, well, you know, being a veteran myself can definitely help break the ice. But if you're not a good therapist and you're not real with, uh, you know, if you're not, you know, being upfront and real with, you know, with the, uh, with the people that you're working with, um, you know, then that can, you know, the whole veteran thing can wear through. So, you know, it's, it's more important to be good at what you do, bring your heart to work, you know, be in the room with them and, you know, be good at what you do, um, uh, you know, more so than, than just being a veteran. But being a veteran certainly does help break the ice. Uh, I think, you know, just having an understanding of the military culture, uh, have a good understanding of, you know, a lot of the, you know, the way that, you know, uh, you speak uh, in the military, that, that does certainly help. So in, in your line of work here with working with veterans, particularly in this area, like why did you, what drew you to be the suicide prevention coordinator? What, uh, why did you um, choose that path in terms of uh, working with the veterans? Well, um, short story, it's, uh, it's really mission focused. Um, you know, just, uh, just realizing that, you know, suicide in the veteran population is, it's, it's, a, it's a really big issue. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are a lot of veterans out there that really do suffer and, you know, they, they don't know what's available, um, you know, and, and, you know, even working with uh, VA or, you know, any other veteran organizations, you can do a lot of uh, outreach, but if you're kind of off by yourself, if you're isolating, then, you know, a lot of the time, you know, that information is going, is not going to reach people. Um, but, you know, veteran suicides, because basically, and in general, as a population, um, obviously, you know, the veteran population is, is really diverse, but overall, statistically speaking, veterans are, are nearly anywhere from 1.5 to two times more likely than the general population um, as, as far as being at risk for suicide. Um, you know, so part of uh, my background is, you know, just being a veteran first, um, you know, something that's really, you know, just, just near and dear to my heart, something that's important to me personally. Um, and then also just coming from the uh, mental health background uh, as a psychotherapist, um, you know, and then specializing in PTSD, working with or working with PTSD, um, you know, suicide prevention was, uh, you know, it's a, it's it's definitely a very challenging job. It's it's not an easy job, um, but it's just something that I just feel very mission focused on and and just you know very drawn to. Yeah. Do you think over the years now, um, in your experience, PTSD is becoming more recognized and less of a stigma, or do you think it's as big a hurdle to uh, demonstrate it's not a, a stigma or weakness? Do you think it's getting better? I think it is getting better, but very, very slowly, because the stigma is still very much alive. 
Um, you know, so it's, and, and it's not just the external stigma, um, you know, because there is still a, a large, uh, a large part of the general civilian population that think, well, PTSD is, is specifically a veteran thing. If somebody's, if somebody is a veteran, automatically they're broken, they've got PTSD, they're crazy, they're a killer, um, or, you know, oh, wow, they're a veteran. Oh, I'm sorry, you must have seen a lot of combat, you know, and so it's kind of like, or, oh, do you have PTSD? How many people have you killed? You know, that must have really messed with you. And it's like, you know, so things like that, it's just like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, so it's, so it's there. So the stigma and the judgments are still really, you know, very much alive. They're very much out there. And there's also an internal stigma as well, because a lot of veterans are judging themselves very harshly. Um, you know, they're thinking, what's wrong with me? I just can't hang. I'm, I must be weak to have PTSD. You know, it's just like, I'm fine. I'm still breathing. You know, it's just, you know, I, I should be just fine with this. So why do I, why do I have these intrusive thoughts? Why do I have these nightmares? You know, why, why can't I hold down a, a job, you know? And so it's kind of like, you know, so there's a lot of that internal stigma. Um, yeah. So, you know, when maybe part of this gets back to, I'm just, I'm just kind of talking off the top of my head here as I listen to you talk is like a lack of a transition plan for veterans. Is that true? Like, so does that worsen the rate of PTSD? Does it increase the chance for suicide if they don't have a transition plan? And how might someone go about setting something like that up or finding a group to do that? Absolutely. It, uh, and that's, that I, I really appreciate you asking that question because yes. Uh, so it's, it's really tough because when someone takes the uniform off, um, you know, the Department of Defense, you know, I mean, in all fairness to them, they try. Uh, you know, there's uh, tuition, the, uh, sorry, the, uh, the TAP briefing or the, the transition assistance program. Um, you know, so, you know, basically it's kind of like you sit in a classroom for a while, for a few days, like maybe three days. They talk about, you know, updating your resume and, you know, looking for jobs and stuff. And so it's, you know, some programs at some locations are better than others. Uh, but, you know, for me personally, my own personal experience, um, I want my three days back. <laughs> Uh, you know, because basically, you know, it was three days of sitting in a classroom being lectured by people who were not looking for a job in the civilian world. They were DOD civilian employees. Um, and this was, uh, this was around 2008. Uh, so this was right as the um, recession was starting. Uh, so getting a job was uh, very tough. Um, and uh, so, you know, with, with something like that, I'm just like, you know what, if I could have just had those three days back doing kind of what I wanted to do rather than <laughs> wasting my time trying to stay awake in a classroom, um, you know, it's just, you know, it, for me, it, it really was not time well spent. Um, but then when you take the uniform off, it's basically the DOD is just like, well, okay, bye, good luck, thanks for your service. Um, and, you know, and so, you know, and that's, and that's a thing too, where it's, you know, something like that is is not just transitioning jobs, it's really transitioning who you are. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and then, you know, working with the VA, um, you know, there's a lot of really good resources out there, but it's only one piece to the puzzle. And a lot of that transition has to take place within, um, you know, and, and it really did with me. I mean, I, I really had to, you know, remind myself, you know what, you are not in the military anymore. And that's a really, that was a really, really, really tough thing to swallow, um, you know, because that's part of my identity. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that that's one of the things that can make recovering from, PT, uh, from PTSD or post-traumatic stress 
difficult as well is because recovering from post-traumatic stress, at least for me, meant kind of letting go of some of my identity too, because that hypervigilance, keeping your head on a swivel, um, and, you know, being mentally alert at all times is the way that they would say that. You know, if you, if you see something, say something. Um, you know, that's, that's part of being a good soldier, airman, sailor, or a Marine. Part of being a good police officer is having that constant awareness, being vigilant all the time. And I'm thinking, well, you know, it's like I'm, I'm really not liking feeling hypervigilant all the time. I don't like, you know, having to, you know, not being able to sit with my back to the door not feeling comfortable or shaking hands with anybody, um, you know, feeling, you know, just starting to, you know, feeling sweaty and starting to breathe heavily and heart pounding, palms sweaty and all that kind of stuff in public areas. Um, I didn't like living like that. Um, and, you know, I'm just and thinking with, you know, a lot of the fellow veterans and, and fellow first responders that are living with pretty significant uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, honestly, I think that I had it easy by comparison. Um, but it really gave me uh, a whole new appreciation for it. And that was one of the driving factors to get into mental health in particular. Um, and then, you know, being able to apply that appreciation that I have for what they're going through uh, and then just, you know, do my best to try and help them recover. Uh, but a lot of it, that's, that's one of the tricky things about PTSD and moral injury too, because that's another, another separate issue that's gaining a lot of uh, notoriety lately and understanding. Um, about about uh, moral injury as well, but a lot of it just you, you almost have to give up that part of yourself that that vigilant part of yourself and just say internally all the time that is not my job anymore and it's important to do that, but it really sucks uh, because that's you know that that vigilance being ready to go at any any moment that's part of yourself that you have to give up in order to recover and at least that was my own experience. Sure. How many veterans uh, have PTSD? How common is it? So roughly, um, I, as far as a raw number, um, I don't have that, but roughly about 20% of veterans uh, have that. And so like, uh, and so, uh, and it, it also really, it also really varies too, because um, combat veterans, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's not just combat veterans. Yeah. Uh, but there are a lot of veterans who have not seen combat, but they have experienced things like military sexual trauma, um, you know, or, you know, a lot of different, uh, different things too. Also, uh, you know, things like uh, training, you know, if there's like training accidents or if they lose friends, um, you know, and, uh, you know or, or things like if they're, you know, activated to like, you know, humanitarian things like, uh, you know, Hurricane Katrina or, you know, things like, uh, you know, uh, responding to like the, um, tsunami, I think, uh, like in the Indian Ocean, uh, things like uh, the earthquake in Haiti, uh, you start seeing some things like that. You're in pretty dangerous situations. A lot of those are human created, you know, if you're getting shot at, um, you know, so, you know, a lot of things like that. Also, there's uh, also the military as a whole uh, has a disproportionate um, percentage of, uh, of uh, people that also come from uh, backgrounds with adverse childhood experiences as well. Oh, yeah. You know, so if you get, uh, you know, there, there, you know, so with an all volunteer force, there is a disproportionate amount of, of uh, people that come in with that first uh, backgrounds of adverse childhood yeah. experiences. Yeah, that's definitely yeah. Yeah. for sure. So um, if someone has PTSD, are they more or less likely um, to have suicidal thoughts or commit? I'm not sure how to phrase this even. 
to commit suicide. Oh, yeah, no, there are uh, com or, or com comorbidities or, or co-occurring. Yeah. So yeah, there, there is an increased risk. Um, so I mean, basically in the way that I like to explain it, well, if, if you're having mental health issues, then you know, typically people that are not feeling well um, you know, are typically going to have, um, uh, have you know, an, increase of an increase in suicide risk as well. Um, so depression by far is the, is the mental health condition that is by far the most co-occurring with suicidality or suicidal ideation. Um, PTSD, they're finding more and more uh, evidence. Um, and I think it's pretty much what people already know is just people are actually starting to be able to prove it now uh, that there is an increase in suicide risk with PTSD. But the thing with PTSD is that it comes in so many different sizes, shapes, flavors, colors, all that kind of stuff. You can have two people with significant PT with severe PTSD, but you know one of them manifests completely different from the other. One might be hypervigilant and have nightmares. The other one might be suffering from severe depression and intrusive thoughts. Um, you know, and so uh, you know, so with something like that, especially if um, you know, because depression and PTSD, uh, insomnia, a lot of those are really co-occurring, and so that's what makes PTSD kind of tricky to treat, is because you have to peel it layer by layer. It really is like an onion. Yeah. Um, and you have to really tailor each treatment regimen to what works with each individual person. Um, you know, so it 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 can be kind of a, it can be kind of elusive. Um, but that's one of the things is that well, you try one key and it doesn't quite fit in the right lock. That's one thing I'd say. You know, just do not give up. You know, if you know if you don't, you know, if you try one therapy and it doesn't work, it's just not your cup of tea or whatever. Uh, please just don't give up. Just keep trying. Um, you know, try and, until you find something that works for you that speaks to you. Um, if it's therapy, if it's, you know, part-time, you know, medication part-time, um, you know, just to help cope until you can, you know, find something that speaks to you and helps you heal. Or even if it's things like, um, you know, another thing that's really big is more of the holistic method. Things like Tai Chi, yoga, relaxation. Um, we've had uh, a, a couple of veterans that they've tried every pill. They have tried every therapy under the sun. They tried Tai Chi. Nightmares are, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're doing a lot better. And so, you know, those kinds of things are starting to be explored now. Eating right, exercising right, you know, just, and then finding what mixture of that. Um, it's frustrating because it really can take a long time to get there. Um, but, you know, if you don't give up and you keep going and you don't, you know, you're able to just say, you know, as soon as you get down on yourself and start getting depressed, you know, just kind of have that little military training instructor in the back of your head saying, get up, you can make it. Um, you know, just, just keep, you know, keep, <laughs> keep marching forward and, you know, just don't give up and finding something that speaks to you and, and you know, it can really help you heal. Well, that's kind of like a different kind of vigilance then uh, for keeping yourself on track. I don't know, that, that's why I kind of took that last little bit there. Yeah. Absolutely. No, and, and it really is. It's, uh, you know, and that's one of the things that, you know, especially if I'm working with somebody who, you know, recently got out, it's kind of like, well, these are some of the struggles that I had. And, you know, if you ever have any questions, you know, even if it's something I don't deal with directly, give me a buzz, um, you know, because like if you need help navigating resources, you know, working, you know, for, you know, the, the federal system. Now I have an understanding of a lot more things that are out there, how to navigate it. Um, Can we pause for a second? <laughs> Sorry, my dogs. Oh, no worries. <laughs> so, so we have uh, <laughs> two German Shepherds and a Corgi here, and we usually kick them outside while we're trying to... Uh, <laughs> I think uh, one of the girls upstairs let the dogs in, so they're all excited, <laughs> piling in. Which, if you want a funny visual, two 
German Shepherds and a Corgi playing. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. Um, well, hey man, this has been a great interview. We're reaching, we're about reaching our time. Is there anything else you want to discuss specifically that you think is important? Well, I think, you know, just, uh, just really, you know, for veterans, you know, if, if they've just gotten out of the military or if they've been out for a long time and, you know, they're still struggling, um, you know, just, you know, just really don't give up and, and be willing to ask for help. Um, you know, keep an open mind as far as, you know, treatments. I mean, treatments are, are you know, still developing, um, but there are a lot of treatments that are out there. Um, you know, and, and, you know, if it, you know, and especially a lot of time, it really takes looking in, like really taking a good hard look within and, you know, just, you know, you know, if you're down at ground zero and just not giving up, um, you know, because honestly, if somebody told me that I was going to be a social worker and working in mental health, um, you know, before I went back to school, I would have said they need mental health help, you know, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, but, yeah. Oh, it was, but yeah, so I mean, it's, it's been great, um, you know, just ask for help, talk with folks, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, just really just, um, you know, just, uh, you know, just, just having that understanding that, you know, you can, you know, just because you might feel kind of out of place in the civilian world, if you're a veteran, um, you know, realize first and foremost, that's normal. Um, and then, you know, just, just remember the strengths that you have from the military. You have a lot of strengths, a lot of experiences, a lot of appreciations for things that, you know, you know, that a lot of other people don't have, and you still have those strengths. You know, it's, it's not, you know, you still have a lot of strengths and, you know, you can use them. It just takes a little bit of exploration just to figure out, okay, so how do I take those strengths? You know, that's something that can never be taken away. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's just being able to find that strength and being able to channel it toward, you know, not only recovery, but finding your place in the world and finding something that you really like. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about feeling better. It's about living life, not just surviving. Yeah. Um, and that's totally, and that is totally possible. It's, it's a tough road sometimes. Um, and it's, it's a painful road. Recovery hurts. Um, but, um, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely worth it. That's, that's one of the things I like about my job is it's every bit as therapeutic for me. Yeah, for sure. So uh, one last question for you. Yeah. What do you do for fun? Well, um, a lot of different things. And a lot of it was, uh, you know, were things that I never thought that I would have liked. Uh, uh, you know, for fun, I really do like to uh, exercise. You know, that's one of the things that I really, you know, especially during the pandemic, uh, you know, exercise is one of the things that really helps keep me centered. But I would say for fun, I love spending time outdoors. Uh, I like spending time with my wife, spending time with family. Um, really like hiking a lot, uh, just being out in nature. Um, and uh, so I also like, uh, uh, you know, I, I really like reading a lot. Uh, and I also like, uh, you know, taking pictures a lot. You know, so I used to, you know, I used to be a big hunter, um, even though I still go to the firing range. Uh, you know, I, I enjoy that. It's very meditative. Um, but I really like, uh, you know, shooting with a different kind of gun instead, you know, using a camera instead, you know, so yeah, taking pictures awesome. of wildlife, taking pictures of flowers, especially, um, you know, it's just, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, something I used to give my dad static about because he's just like, well, you know, sometimes you just got to start, you know, just stop and sniff the flowers. And so I'm just like, yeah, that's so lame. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's not manly at all, that's you know, so it's just kind of like. So I, you know, it's just like, man, I don't have time to stop and sniff the flowers. And so I used to get my dad static about that, but I find myself doing it a lot now. So I'm just like, huh. well, I guess he's right. <laughs> yeah, every day we become more and more like our dads. 
I always have that moment thinking about my dad saying something as well. Well, hey, man, I really appreciate it. Um, we might talk again. I have many more questions for you, but we're out of time. Anytime. Yeah. Anytime. Thank you so much. I really appreciate what you guys are doing. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate the uh, chance for me to shoot my mouth a lot, uh, shoot my mouth off about something I really care about. So, you know, thank you guys so much for what you're doing. It's, it's been a pleasure. So, you guys got my contact information. Anything you need, please give me a buzz. All right. Thanks a lot, Rob. I appreciate it, man. This concludes today's Vets First podcast. For questions or comments relating to the program, please direct email correspondence to vetsfirstpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.